Welcome to Autism Knows No Borders. Discover what's possible when people impacted by autism inspire change and build community. Together with the Global Autism Project, here's your host, Rachel Harmon. Hello, everyone. Our guest today is Paul Mikalev. Paul is an autistic self-advocate from Melbourne, Australia. A former aerospace engineer with a passion for teaching, Paul publishes videos about autism on his YouTube channel, Autism from the Inside. He also offers an autism-friendly online course on emotional intelligence, as well as relationship coaching for autistic people and their loved ones. In today's conversation, we discuss Paul discovering his autism, some ways he feels misunderstood, what made Paul decide to cut off his dreadlocks, masking and burnout, misconceptions about autism, how Paul learned emotional intelligence, reading subtle social cues, developing self-awareness and regulating his own emotions, relationship management, situations in which Paul may or may not disclose his autism, changing people's perceptions about autism, the double empathy problem, the Autism from the Inside virtual summit, which starts on September 19th, and advice for autistic people who are struggling to build relationships. In this episode, discover what's possible when self-awareness improves relationships. To learn more about Paul and his work, please visit our show notes at autismknowsnoborders.com. We appreciate your time. If you enjoy this podcast and you'd like to support our mission, please take just a few seconds to share it with one person who you think will find value in it too. You can also follow us on Instagram at Autism Podcast. Subscribe to our YouTube channel, Global Autism Project, and join our online community on Mighty Networks at community.globalautismproject.org. And now I present you, Paul Mikalev. Hi, Paul. Welcome to Autism Knows No Borders. Thanks for joining our show today. Thanks, Rachel. Good to be here. Could you please briefly introduce yourself? Sure. So my name is Paul Mikalev. I run Autism from the Inside here in Australia. So I used to be an aircraft structural engineer until I discovered I was on the spectrum at about the age of 30. And yeah, my special interest is emotional intelligence. And I am really passionate about translating, I guess, is one way to talk about it, like the cultural translator between the autistic community and the neurotypical community. So I, yeah like to help people understand each other. Perfect. All right. So what made you seek out your diagnosis at 30 years old? So it was a complete accident. My mum gave me a book to read. You may have heard of it. It's Look Me in the Eye by John Elder Robison. And I don't know if there was any intention behind that or if she just read it and thought, oh, this is interesting. He might like it. Sometimes mothers know things. <laughs> <laughs> so I got about halfway through that book and I just couldn't keep reading. It was too relatable. And I Googled what Asperger's was. I found a local support group. I called them up. I made sure that it was okay for me to come and join. I was a little bit hesitant about the whole self-diagnosis thing. And especially it was literally day one and I didn't know how they would 
take it, me just turning up to one of their meetings. But they were very friendly, got back to me that very same day. And then, yeah, literally the next day, I went to that support group meeting and discovered that I had a lot more in common with the other attendees than I originally thought. Hmm. What were some specific examples from the book that you read and thought, wow, this is me? It wasn't so much that we are the same, me and John. It's more that he was describing his thought process to the reader in a way that I thought was redundant. So like, why is he explaining this? Isn't it obvious? And it kind of clicked with me that, no, it's not obvious. And there's something that I am understanding and relating with, with this story that is not common (laughs) to relate to. So I guess I have a lot of skills that are well outside the normal range. And I, so I, I relate to that a lot. I often analyze social situations in a very analytical way. So that was another thing, I suppose. And it was more just his, his way of thinking because we are very, very different people, but there was something that I was having trouble trying to put my finger on that was feeling very familiar even though we were very, very different people. Hmm. Interesting. If you were to kind of describe that different way of thinking from a neurotypical person, how would you describe it so that they would understand? I think I've noticed these days that the neurotypical population seem to have this intuitive understanding of each other. And part of the reason for that is when we talk about theory of mind and trying to understand another person, a good first guess is how would I react if I were that other person in that situation? And when I did that, the answer I got was very, very different because I react and think about things and my preferences and all of these different things tend to be very different to my peers. And so what that means is when I tried to understand the people around me, I didn't have a good first starting point to build on. So what that meant was it felt like I was in a room full of people who were quite alien to me. I recently did a a YouTube live with Chris Bonello and he flipped this completely on, on its head. Typically, we say that Asperger's is wrong planet syndrome, where you feel like you're on the wrong planet. And I really liked his idea. He was saying, no, 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 this is my planet. What are all these aliens doing here? (laughs) (laughs) So there's definitely a sense of disconnect from my peers, I guess, is is probably the, the core element of how I would describe autism. Under all of the traits, under all of the cultural things that we've built up around autism, that's the number one thing that is at at the core of all of it. Hmm. Interesting. So what do you think are some of the biggest misconceptions about autism? So probably the biggest one is that we function differently on an emotional level. So there have been theories that autistic people lack empathy and things like that, which is a complete myth. And the more I've looked into it, 
from an emotional intelligence perspective, the more I realize this is actually really true that all human beings are fundamentally the same when it comes to emotions. On the inside, fear is fear, joy is joy, anxiety, frustration, anger, all of that stuff is the same on the inside. And what is very different is how we express it on the outside. So when I accidentally laugh in people's faces, when they say something that is humorous to me that they didn't think was that funny, it makes me look like I'm not reacting in an appropriate way to what was said. Whereas actually, it's just that what was said, I found amusing in in a particular way that is not typical. So my reactions are very different, but my emotions are just the same. I talk about this a lot in my emotional intelligence courses, that emotions are so universal that we share them with other mammals too, right? Dogs, horses, other pets, right? That's one of the reasons why service animals are so powerful because if your best friend is a dog, then they can pick up on your emotions and respond to that and have a a real genuine emotional connection there because emotions are so universal. Hmm. So before we get more into emotional intelligence, could you first describe or define what it is for our listeners? The best definition that I like to use is that emotional intelligence is the skill set of recognizing and being aware of your own emotions and the emotions of other people so that you can manage and regulate your own emotions and the emotions of other people in the context of a relationship. So it's a skill set and it involves self-awareness and emotional regulation. And it's something that can be developed or learned. It's a skill that can be learned. It's a little bit like learning a second language when like body language is, is literally like another language where if you don't get it at first, It takes a lot of time and exposure and practice to really understand the nuances of a language. The first time you hear it, all the words sound the same. You can't pick where one word stops and the other, the others keeps going. But with dedicated practice, then yes, it's definitely possible to get better. The one thing I often say with emotional intelligence, absolute guaranteed, if you practice, you will improve. So right. that's that's almost a self-fulfilling prophecy there. Mm-hmm. And how did you get into this and how did you learn to develop it in yourself? I guess it's been an interest of mine for as long as I can remember. And it started off with just the awareness that I was different and the awareness that people were different. And I had to answer this question for myself. How do I predict the behavior of people around me. People around me seem weird and strange and do funny things for funny reasons I don't understand. So I needed to answer those questions for myself just for a survival. And the best answer I found to that question is if you want to understand behavior, you have to understand the emotions that are driving behavior. So my little Aspie brain would ask people questions like, what were you thinking? Or why did you do that? And the answers that I got were not the real answers. The answers were, you know, post 
rationalizations from the person of, oh, I wonder why I did that. It must have been for this reason. It was not for the intellectual reason that they were telling me. It was because it was motivated by how they were feeling at the time. So I would ask a question like, why do I have to say hello? I don't like saying hello. Why do I have to say hello? And no one had a good answer for me. Turns out there is a very, very good answer. And I've you know, built up the framework so that I can understand that now in the context of emotional intelligence and the effect that it has on other people and culture and norms and what happens when you break those norms and all of that kind of complicated stuff. But the people around me didn't know the answer. They just would shrug it off and go, I don't know, you just do. That's just what you do. And that was kind of the level of sophistication that the answers were. It's just what you do. Just do it. Mm -hmm. So that wasn't very helpful for me. Okay. Got it. And so this is when you were younger, you said. Yes, definitely. Definitely. And again, the, the challenge for myself trying to learn emotional intelligence when I was younger is that I didn't really have a friendship group that I could learn from because I, I didn't feel connected to my peers. That is necessary. How am I going to learn a second language if I don't actually hear anyone speaking it natively? I'm just reading it out of a textbook and trying to figure out how it works. It turns out to learn how to speak a second language, you actually need to practice speaking a second language with a person, with a purpose in the context of a relationship. Mm -hmm. So then you eventually were able to kind of observe it from other humans, not just reading the textbooks, right? What was that journey like? So when I was 16, I accidentally got dreadlocks. I met someone and they said, can I give you dreadlocks? And I said, what are dreadlocks? And <laughs> from then on, I had a very, very different hairstyle, which led me to stand out at the time. So that was like night and day. What happened was that how other people perceived me radically changed. All of a sudden, I was no longer boring and shy and awkward. I was you know, suddenly cool and being invited to parties and people wanted to talk to me and they would ask me about my hair and they would, you know, it was, it was a conversation starter. It was like a little gimmick, like a party trick that I could, that I could rely on to be noticed for other people to find me interesting, for other people to initiate social contact with me so that I didn't have to try and figure out what to do to be included. Mm-hmm. Got it. And eventually you were prompted to cut them off? So this is part of my self-discovery journey with autism, I guess, because when the pieces started falling together that I was autistic, I started realizing how much I had been leaning on my mask, which was this party trick that I learned when I was 16. And I didn't really know who I was without that mask. So it seemed pretty obvious to me that part of discovering what autism means for me was letting go of pretending and this fairly immature way of relating to people. I needed to, to figure out who I was first so that I could actually build a different level of relationship with people that wasn't 
quite as superficial, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Yeah. How did you change after you finally started unmasking? It's a long process. And as a lot of older autistic, I say older, but what I mean is sort of like 30s, 40s, 50s, kind of older. I also recently did a uh, interviewed a panel of of autistic people in their seventies. So now, when I say I used to say older, um, uh, late diagnosed, meaning like myself, but now I've got a, a yeah. different level in my head when I say that. So, as a lot of people in my kind of position find, the masking has been so ubiquitous, for lack of a better word, in life that you don't notice it anymore, and it's completely unconscious. So I started to recognize some of the things that I'd just been putting up with that I didn't need to keep putting up with. So I didn't think I was particularly sensitive to light or sound or, you know, those kind of stereotypical sensory issues. But as soon as I started regularly wearing earplugs in cafes, there's no way I'm going back (laughs) after that. It's just that I have a huge amount of energy for pushing myself through situations, which leads to burnout, obviously, eventually. But what I found is that part of the unmasking process is how do I be slightly more myself, spend slightly less of my emotional and social energy in this situation so that I can do more things in my life. A lot of people say, I don't like people, I like to be alone. And there's some truth in that. And another way of saying that is when I'm around people, it costs me a lot of energy and I don't like to spend that energy. So when I'm tired, I prefer to recharge by myself. And if we can flip that a little bit to be in a social situation where I know for myself where I don't need to put in that extra level of energy where I can be myself, it's not stressful. It's actually quite relaxing for me to be around people if I don't have to mask and if I don't have to spend all of that extra social energy trying to figure out what I have to do. Mm-hmm. Is it like a red flag kind of when you feel that the mask is coming back and you're like, hold on, let me just reevaluate what my needs are in this situation? Um, It's a lot more graduated than that. So there's a large degree of difference between masking a little bit and pushing myself a little bit and then all the other way, the other end of the spectrum where I'm completely uncomfortable and I really need to leave the situation or, or change something. So because it's it's not so much that it's subtle, but there's such a wide gradient between those two things that it's not always easy to see if things are getting worse, if I'm masking more and more and more, because it it just feels like I'm swallowing more and taking on more and, and pushing myself through a situ- situation just a little bit more than I would normally. And for most situations, that's completely fine. It takes me a little bit more energy and eventually I will finish that and have a break and everything's fine. So it's still challenging for me to realize how 
difficult that can be when it takes too much energy and making sure that I stay on the right side of not burning out and not losing all my social energy. Mm -hmm. So Paul, let's go back to emotional intelligence. What are some things about emotions that you wish you would have learned earlier on that might've helped you? So I actually have a very good sense for emotions from other people. Um, quite empathic, and that sense is usually accurate. I can read people pretty well. And I only realized that recently because when I was growing up, I kept being told that I was wrong because when someone was smiling at me but they were obviously sad inside, I would respond to, oh, this person's sad. <laughs> And what I should have done, quote unquote, you know, socially is notice this person is really sad, but they're smiling at me, which means they would prefer that I did not acknowledge their sadness. They would like me to completely ignore that and pretend that they are happy. That's quite a sophisticated thing to try and figure out by yourself. So if I had to teach my younger self one thing, it would be that people send mixed messages all the time. And if you're getting mixed messages, you're probably correct. They probably are really sad on the inside and they probably are trying to look happy on the outside. And there's probably a really good social and emotional reason that they're doing that. Mm, okay. And I guess that would have maybe spared people pushing you away for overstepping? Yeah. So if I understood that when I was younger, it would mean that I didn't push people where they didn't want to go. This is one of the core things of emotional intelligence is that the goal of emotional intelligence, essentially in a very, very simplistic way is to, you know, to improve the mood of people around you most of the time so that you know, when people like me, they're more likely to respond positively to me. They're more likely to listen to me. They're more likely to include me. They're more, basically everything is better if I have a positive impact on the emotions of people around me, as opposed to a negative impact. So my ignorance of how the social stuff worked meant that I was often having a negative impact emotionally on the people around me. Acknowledging the sadness is a good one. If someone is trying to pretend to be happy and I say, what's wrong? You're obviously upset. It's going to make them uncomfortable because they don't know what to do in the situation. They'll be smiling and saying, what's wrong with you? You should be taking my very obvious facial cue here that I do not want to talk about how miserable I am right now, please. And that level of directness causes other people around me to feel awkward and not want to talk to me. But I didn't know what I was doing. I was just trying to figure out what was going on at the time. Right. So how has your life changed since learning emotional intelligence? So I guess there are two main areas. There's how I am aware of my own emotions and how I regulate myself. And then there's the, the relationship aspect. So just sticking on the, the self-awareness part first, it means that I know 
how much energy certain things take because I'm, I'm more aware of it. So if I plan to go to the pub with some friends, then I will take earplugs with me and I will know in advance that I'll probably stay two and two to three hours maybe and then I'll think, okay, that's probably enough, let's go home. So having the self-awareness in advance is really helpful for, for planning and it also means that when I feel terrible, I can usually find a good reason for why I feel terrible. When I completely run out of executive function resources and can't string two words together, the reason that I can barely speak at the moment is because I've had a really hard week or I've just spent all my energy writing an email or whatever it is that has actually drained my energy. And that allows me to be a lot more self-compassionate in a sense. It takes away a lot of the shoulds in the situation. Instead of I should be able to socialize or I should be able to speak or I should be able to make my bed or put the dishes away or do some other kind of basic everyday task that my brain thinks or, or that society might think that's a tiny task, you should just be able to do it. I know for myself that at the moment, I can't do that for a very good reason. And it allows me to be kinder to myself in that sense. Hmm. Yeah. Great. And how about with other people? So this is the most advanced <laughs> emotional intelligence area, the relationship management. And I'm trying to think what the biggest difference has been for me. I think it's probably that I recognize what when other people don't do what I need them to do, it's not their fault. So if someone is busy and at my age, a lot of my friends have kids and families and other commitments and are often busy, it's not something that they're doing against me. And I, again, can recognize that it's not something that's not something wrong with me. So I can, I can help manage my own sort of rejection sensitivity in that sense. It also means that when I'm reaching out to someone or when I'm communicating, especially in difficult situations about something that is uncomfortable, having the focus of how are my actions going to make the other person feel is a lot simpler than trying to figure out what someone else is thinking. It's relatively easy to figure out, is someone going to be happy with me or sad with me? And all I need to do is act in a way that gets what I need in the situation and has a positive impact on the emotions of the people around me. Okay, got it. And you mentioned that you offer a course on emotional intelligence, which is autism friendly. So what are some key strategies that you teach to help others manage their emotions and overcome some of these challenges? So you may have heard from how I'm talking already that I, I'm an engineer. I'll probably always be an engineer, even though I haven't worked as one for probably 10 years now. I take a very systematic, structured approach to teaching about emotions. And when we understand the reason behind what's going on, when it's as simple as, well, you, you know, it's, it's like gravity. If you drop something, it's going to hit the ground. So if you don't want it to hit the ground, 
don't drop it. Or if you can't help but drop it, then put something between it and the ground so it doesn't break. Suddenly, the the more we can understand the, the dynamics of what's happening, it gives us so many more options as to what to do to get the outcome. So I have an emotional feedback flowchart that clearly outlines some of the emotions and the things that we feel are not within our conscious control. So I'm constantly reacting. Everything I see, everything I think, everything I touch, everything I smell is going to elicit some kind of involuntary reaction from me that is usually so small you don't even you don't even notice that it's happening. But recognizing that means that it helps with the self-awareness so that I can see what can I do. It might be leaving a situation, it might be thinking happy thoughts. You know, that's a strategy that works sometimes, not all the time. It might be deliberately remembering something. It might be talking to myself. But whatever the strategy is, I need to know when and how to use it. So lots of step-by-step strategies of this is how to manage an emotion. First, you notice the emotion, then you regulate yourself and Basically, just step-by-step step through through all that kind of stuff. Okay, great. And you also offer relationship coaching for autistic individuals or people who are in a relationship with someone on the spectrum. Now, is this specific to romantic relationships or just any relationship in general? So the most common client that I have is someone who is in a relationship with an autistic person and is trying to understand the other person better. So that's probably the the most common because my autistic clients tend to have many different life coaching goals. So it's it's life coaching, which can sometimes be relationship coaching. So that might be, I want to be more assertive at work. It might be, I want to develop my social life. It might be, I want to communicate better with my partner. So whatever, whatever that is, life coaching picks a, a goal, something that you want to make better in your life. And then we clarify what you want and explore it a bit more and figure out some actionable steps to get you a little bit closer to that goal. I'll just say a little bit more about the relationship coaching. The Understanding of autism makes a huge difference, especially in an intimate relationship, because when someone responds in a different way than you're expecting, it's easy to think that they there's like a hidden meaning behind what they're doing and to internalize, well, if if they didn't put the dishes away, it must mean they don't love me. You know, that's an extreme example of a very small thing and a very big, very big result. But these kind of miscommunications can have a huge impact on an especially an intimate relationship and just getting a sense of what the other person is going through helps us to come back on the same page and come back as as a team on that Mm. Mm -hmm. do you sometimes work with both people occasionally okay it's usually one of the couple rather than both it's fantastic when both are on board and both come to the session, but the other partner is not always keen. So I very often have this advice for people that 
even if your partner isn't on board, there's still a lot that you can do on your side of the relationship that will make, number one, you feel a lot better, and number two, help the other person to succeed as well and therefore make the whole relationship a significant amount better. Yeah, and these are tips that can be applied to not just autistic people, but anyone really. There is a huge overlap between the emotional intelligence and the life coaching because really we're, we're learning to listen to ourselves first, which requires emotional intelligence. And then communication skills relies on listening to other people. And that, again, everything relies on emotional intelligence in that sense. Mm-hmm. Are you in a relationship yourself? Yes, I've been married for a bit over two years now. Is your partner autistic? She has ADHD, so related, but not autistic. Okay. Do you think the work that you've been doing over the years has helped you have a strong relationship? Definitely, definitely. The amount of work that is required to make a neurodivergent relationship work is more than average. When two people who are more or less similar come together and they just, that you don't always have to think about what to do. It's a little bit like a cross-cultural kind of situation where it's going to take me a lot more work if I go to China or Russia or Egypt or something where there's more difference and especially a lot more unconscious difference between how I think and how I communicate with the people around me. So if I'm going to have success in building relationships cross-culturally, I need to really take a look at myself and my own assumptions as to what I what I think, you know, quote unquote, should be the right way to do a relationship. And it really helps to take all of those issues really seriously. Mm, yeah, definitely. So, you know, with doing a lot of this work and developing that self-awareness, I imagine, you know, you prepare yourself when you're interacting with other people, but are there any ways that you feel misunderstood from people who might judge you? All the time. (laughs) Basically, because my outward appearance changes so much depending on the situation. So a group situation, especially a group situation where I don't know the others very well, they're kind of acquaintances, that's really challenging. What I would have done in the past is mask, essentially. I would have put on a more outgoing persona so that I could talk to people and interact with people. Because if I don't do that, I'm just sitting there and when people talk to me, I don't respond. (laughs) That's not a great way to make friends in a group, to ignore people when they talk to you and not respond. (laughs) Whereas if I am in a different situation where it's more one-on-one or we've got something to do or something real to talk about, like a topic or something rather than just small talk, then suddenly I'm a completely different person. I talk a lot. I'm really engaged. I can pay attention to people. I can form really, really strong relationships in that setting. But if you put me in the group setting where I don't know people and I don't have the energy to put on a more outgoing personality, 
then I really don't like the fact that I will be misunderstood. It's just a fact of life in, in that situation. People don't haven't seen the other side of me, so there's, there's no way for them to know it exists. Mm-hmm. Do you disclose your autism often? No, not really, not often. <laughs> uh, the most common way I disclose my autism is when someone asks, what do you do? And I tell them that I teach about autism and uh, emotional intelligence online and they say, oh, cool, that's interesting. How did you get into that? <laughs> and it comes up. I, I don't always disclose it in the story, but it, it's a very common way for me to, to tell people that I'm autistic is through that story. There's not many other reasons that I would have to tell people. Mm -hmm. I, I also personally don't think it really helps unless someone has a very good understanding of what autism is, then using that word doesn't help them to understand whatever specific thing I'm trying to explain. So if I'm trying to explain why I'm wearing earplugs at the gym or why I am walking up and down the back of the meeting room instead of sitting down like every other board member, <laughs> then I will just say something more helpful like I sit down all day, I get a bit fidgety if I try and sit down. This really helps me think if I, if I walk up and down the back of the room. If I'm walking up like this, it means that I'm listening. Mm -hmm. And people say, oh, cool. Yeah, I, I sit down all day as well. That's a really good idea. <laughs> yeah. I see two sides of this because on the one hand, people might attach all the stereotypes when you bring up the word autism and you know have these preconceived ideas of what it means and who autistic people are. So I understand you don't want to be misunderstood from that side, but then at the same time, by disclosing that you are autistic, you can even break some of those stereotypes. So then it becomes kind of a learning opportunity for them. But I understand you might not always be in the mood to be teaching someone about autism. <laughs> yeah, definitely socially. The reason I might ignore that part of the story socially is to avoid the situation where I end up educating people <laughs> in my time that I'm supposed to not be at work. Right, yeah. But there's, there's actually a more deliberate approach to this because I personally feel that people need to have a question before you can give them an answer. So the way it usually plays out with me is people will get to know me and if I am masking slash passing enough, they won't notice anything too different about me in the first little bit. And they'll get to know me a little bit. And then at some point in the relationship, they will realize that I'm autistic. And then it will radically shift what they previously thought about autism. Because their first question would be, but you don't fit any of the stereotypes that I thought. And you're talking to me and you're making eye contact and you're doing all these other things. And then there'll be a more nuanced learning opportunity to say, well, actually, if you were paying attention, I was actually giving you a minimum amount of eye contact, just enough for you to not notice that I'm avoiding it. <laughs> and if you also notice, I also tend to stand next to you instead of in front of you, which means that we tend to not have to look each other face to face. 
and various other things like that. And they'll go, oh, wow, that's really interesting. And so it's a, it's a bit more of a nuanced discussion if there's already the relationship there. Mm-hmm. All right, Paul, let's talk about your YouTube channel and the webinars that you host. You host a virtual series called Autism from the Inside. So tell us about that project. Yeah, so when I first discovered I was autistic, I did a lot of reading and I opened all the textbooks and I found myself getting really angry at the textbooks because they were describing what you could see on the outside and they were missing the internal experience. So that's why I started what is now Autism from the Inside. And as that grew, it started with me just sharing my personal experience and being legitimately surprised at how many people could relate to what I thought at the time was a fairly unique thing for me. And then I realized that we really just need so much more of this. We need to hear more autistic voices. We need to hear more of what's going on on the inside to help bridge that empathy gap between the neurotypical and, and, and autistic communities. Because as I mentioned earlier with the, with the emotional intelligence stuff, the, the key there is empathy because we really can understand each other. Autistic behavior seems weird only if you don't know why it's happening or only if you don't know the person behind it. Does that make sense? Yeah, definitely. We've talked on this podcast before about the double empathy problem. I think it was... Dr. Damien Milton. Thank you. Damien Milton. Yeah. And we had Tara Vance from Neuroclastic on the show. I don't know if you know her. Her and Kate were describing the the double empathy problem being kind of exactly what you're saying, that the gap is actually from neurotypical people not understanding autistic people. And so to kind of flip it on its head and look at how we can solve that. Yeah. So I'm, I'm really passionate about sharing lived experience, especially for parents and teachers and professionals and, and others who are actively trying to understand their autistic loved ones. And when the penny drops and it actually makes sense at an intuitive level, that is such a different way of learning than reading something in a textbook. Even if you already know what something means, when it really hits you at an intuitive level and so that you could say, I can see how a person kind of like me might respond like that. We're not so different. Right. Yeah. So you have a online summit coming up and it is starting on the 19th, lasts a week long. What are you excited about with this lineup? And the theme? Yeah, so there's a lot of different talks. We have 25 different sessions over the five days. Everything from, you know, understanding behavior to adult issues. We've got a, a whole day dedicated to, to managing autism in adult life. And with that panel of autistic people in their 70s that I mentioned. And the most rewarding thing for me for putting putting all of this together is I get to reach out and talk to so many different people from all over the world and, and hear their story and help them to share their 
not only their personal story and their personal experience, but most of the summit speakers are also professionals in their own right, in their own field. So thankfully, we are getting more and more autistic psychologists and OTs and other people that work with the autistic community on a daily basis. So they're not only sharing just their own personal story, but also what they've learned from working with others in the, in the autistic community. Great. And it is free to sign up, right? Yeah, that's right. So it's a completely free five-day online event. And we try to make it as accessible as possible. So what that means is no matter where you are in the world, you can have access to the on-demand video of that day's speakers. So rather than saying you have to turn up at this exact time, we just pre-recorded it. And then you can just turn up at roughly the right time on the right day and watch it whenever suits you. And there's also an option at the end after the week-long event has finished, if you want to turn the whole resource into you know, something that you'll come back to and, and watch it again and again, as some people like to do, then it's possible to, to purchase lifetime access to the whole thing as well. Okay, great. That's really a wonderful thing that you're putting together. We'll put a link in our show notes so that people can sign up. I think by the time this podcast is released, the summit will be starting the next week. So there's definitely time to catch up. Yeah. And I'm constantly surprised again and again by the same thing, which you'd sort of think I would learn by now, but (laughs) every year it surprises me the kind of feedback we get just by sharing a story. People saying, wow, it was so fantastic to hear you talking about your life and how you, how you experience the world and your personal sensory issues and your personal experience with burnout and your personal experience with how to get a job or all of these other really, really common things. Because especially for parents and teachers, you can't ask a five-year-old to explain themselves in exactly what's going on for themselves. So to have the, the benefit of a couple of extra decades of, you know, self-awareness to help you to understand that is, is really valuable. Mm, right, right. Yeah, and even for professionals in the field who want to learn how they can better support their clients, it's a really great resource, listening directly to autistic voices. It's one of our aims with this podcast. All right, Paul, I'd like to close with one last question. What advice would you give to autistic individuals who are maybe struggling to build these relationships? Where's a good place to start? I mean, other than taking your courses and signing up for coaching. So I'll share one of the key kind of concepts from the emotional intelligence course, which is that we know that masking is not very healthy because you're putting on a facade that's not really you. And then when you get success with the mask, it's easy to still feel that rejection. Yeah, you only like me because I'm masking. As soon as I take the mask off, you're not going to like what's underneath. So we know that that's not a really good strategy in the long term. We also know that the typical, you know, just be yourself advice doesn't work either. When I'm myself, people don't want to talk to me because it's too weird. So it starts with yourself. It starts with knowing who you are as a person and what you you want out of life and out of situations and out of relationships. And then it's about finding 
a socially appropriate version of your true self. So you want to be a version of yourself that's authentic. Like I am a version of myself today. I am a different version of myself when I'm playing with my niece and nephew. I'm a different version of myself with my wife. I'm a different version of myself when I'm, you know, in Canberra talking to politicians, right? Every different situation brings out different parts of yourself. So making genuine connections is about knowing yourself well enough to say, well, which parts of myself are appropriate to bring to this situation? All right. That is very sound advice. Thank you, Paul. How can people learn more about you? The best place to look me up is autismfromtheinside.com.au. So there's also the YouTube channel, Autism From The Inside, which is easy to find. But in terms of resources and links to the Emotional Intelligence course and the, this upcoming online summit and our monthly webinars and things like that, autismfromtheinside.com.au. Perfect. All right, Paul, thank you so much for sharing your story with us. I think this is going to be a really, really valuable episode for people who want to learn more about how they can manage their own emotions and relate to people in the world. Yeah, no worries. Thanks for the invite. Thanks for tuning in to Autism Knows No Borders. As Paul mentioned, recognizing your own emotions as they happen can help you manage stress and conflict while increasing your ability to read the emotional messages of others. If you're autistic, what's your experience with emotional intelligence? Share your story over in our online Global Autism community. Family members and professionals are also welcome. This is a safe space to hear directly from autistic individuals and learn how to become a better ally. Whatever your role related to autism is, you can join our online Global Autism community to collaborate with people all over the world. Sign up today at community.globalautismproject.org. Let's work together to transform how the world relates to autism. Thanks for listening. Take care. Tune in each week for engaging conversations of how people across the globe are inspiring change and building community. You've been listening to Autism Knows No Borders, brought to you by the Global Autism Project. You can find Rachel's notes for this episode and learn more about today's guests at AutismKnowsNoBorders.com. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to the show on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. By doing so, you'll be helping us increase awareness and acceptance of autism around the world.